0: I'm Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. You're listening to This Is The Way Podcast and the Star Wars Andor Season 1, Episode 5 Reaction and Discussion. We had some adventures here at This Is The Way Podcast headquarters this past week. You know, two weeks ago it was a hurricane, and now we had an adventure of the computing kind. Our desktop just decided to stop allowing access to File Explorer. That meant no saving, no accessing saved files, no transferring files to external hard drives. (laughs) A few panic attacks later, and I had to reinstall Windows and many, many programs, including those that helped me produce this podcast. So all my settings are gone. I, I, I really did panic. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure that the presets won't take us back to the sound quality of the first season of The Mandalorian. Now, if you listen to our podcast back then, there were a lot of comments about, oh, they, they sound like they're in a bathtub. or so. Gradually, I hit upon settings that I felt made this podcast sound better. Now, on top of that, my eldest child turned nine last week. So we had a party on the weekend, we had to prepare for it, and while I, I did watch Andor on Wednesday, I wasn't able to get started on podcast pre-production until Saturday night. Now, I'm not sure everything's going to work out right, but let, let's just see what happens, shall we? Before that, a reminder. Everything in this show is taking place before the movie Rogue One. We know what happens to Cash and Andor at the end. His end cannot be spoiled. It's several years old now, that movie. The journey there might be even more enjoyable than that destination of a movie. It was great. I liked it. So far, every episode of Andor has been just a joy for me to watch. Episode 5 is titled The Axe Forgets, and it's a reference to a line from Skeen to Andor, but... Wikipedia called it an African proverb, but even those citations kind of list that as a dubious origin. Now listen, if you're listening to a podcast about an episode of a show without having seen the episode, it is not spoiling anything for you. You know what you're going to get when you choose to listen. You will hear about this week's episode of Andor, and I will reference other Star Wars shows and movies that have already been released. If any of that bothers you, please come back some other time. Well, if you're ready, well... Let's go! It never fails that, you know, I have all these ideas for what sound effects to use and to, to, to transition and stuff. It all There's always something in a show that I can end up using. Like Cyril's line there from episode 1 or 2 there. The writer for episodes 4 through 6... Dan Gilroy, showrunner, Tony Topic Gilroy's brother, doing a great job. The same director is going to be in charge of all three of his episodes, Susanna White. The runtime shows up as 46 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page. It's the second longest episode. The action runs more than 37 minutes and 35 seconds from the start of the Andor title screen at the open until cutting to black from the workroom window at Luthen's store on Coruscant. The variations on the Andor theme continue from Nicholas Bertel, and though we've been featuring them as the exit music for our podcasts, this one's a slow burner, you know, like the last one, and some might say that's kind of like the show as a whole so far. Season 1 has 12 episodes, so we're probably going to get 12 versions of the theme, which I think is terrific. So far there's only three versions on Spotify, but maybe this next three Uh, episode story arc will also get a release on Spotify before long. We'll have to see, and we'll have to wait till next week. The thumbnail description available on the show's Disney Plus episodes tab reads, Cashin must carefully navigate the distrust inherent in being the new member of a secret operation. The description on the show's episode page in Disney Plus is a lot more descriptive. It reads, being a team player does not come naturally to Cashin, but the daring mission to infiltrate an Imperial garrison requires it of him. The operation has been in the planning stages for months. As the newest member of the mission, Cashin must overcome the prudent distrust of his teammates. Prudent. Good word there. The stage is set. Now it's the time I like to talk a little bit about the players. You think anybody's listening? The show is called Andor, after all, and Diego Luna is Cassian, and also continues answering to his Aldani alias, Clem. Luthan Rail is Stellan Skarsgård, and he is fantastic. Likewise, Mon Mothma, played by Genevieve O'Reilly. Those are the first three names you see in the credits for, for acting. And they're probably the stars who would make the marquee, too. And there's some great performances, though. People, they're they're not... Household names, but maybe they will be if they continue with this quality of acting. I've got to believe that other people are watching the show, casting directors, you know, just people in the industry. They have got to be seeing these performances and going, wow, this is amazing. And yes, the writing has a lot to do with it, but wow, some great performances. Imperial security officer Dedra Miro, played by Denise Gao. Cyril Karn is played by Kyle Soller. Vel Sartha is Faye Marseille. Cinta Kaz is Varata Sethu. Claya Markey. She de- she deserves a lot more work. Elizabeth Dulao is the is the actress. This she she is she's phenomenal. She's one of my favorites, and, and she makes a small role, something so much bigger. I want to know more about her character. Edie Carn is played by Catherine Hunter. Perinfertha, Mothma's husband is Alastair McKenzie. Karis Nemec is Alex Lothar, and he's he's great as well. I mean, I, I'm loving that character because of the, the, the acting that he's doing. Lieutenant Gorn, Sule Rimi. Arvel Skeen is Eben Moss Backrack, Great performance from him. Taraman Barcona is Gershwin Eustace Jr. Lida, not Leia, is Bronte Carmichael and the father daughter gang up on mom Mothma is really spectacular to watch, and it's sad to imagine if it was real. Lieutenant Supervisor Blevin is played by Ben Bailey Smith. Captain Vanis Tego is played by Game of Thrones Rhaegar Targaryen portrayer Wolf Scolding. At least that's what it says on IMDb. Corporal Kimsey is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. alumni Nick Blood. Attendant Heert, Miro's assistant, is Jacob James Beswick. Corporal Number 1 has roles on Doctor Who and Black Mirror to his credit, but parents might recognize his voice. Dan Lee, L-I, is a lowly Imperial Corporal here, but on Thomas and Friends, he's Yong Bao. The nature of this show's handling of how time is passing here in the first season might mean We get a steady stream of new characters. So far, the casting has been phenomenal. Heck, I've already learned the name Eben Moss Backrack, and I couldn't have told you who that was two weeks ago if my life depended on it. Nobody here gives their real name. All right, let's talk about the episode. There's the Disney Plus splash screen, a previously on segment, the Lucasfilm Star Wars sequence, and then... The title sequence. The new theme variation from composer Nicholas Bertel leads into Cyril Carn's childhood bedroom on Coruscant. I make that assumption because, remember, he was embraced by his mom in the last episode, and now he's in this pretty sterile room, sparsely decorated. And he's not too far from the sun. You know, they're not too far down in levels, but they are deep enough where, I guess, a large passing ship, it sounded like that was what was happening casted a shadow, blocking the light. Maybe it was just that was his minute or 20 seconds of sunshine that he gets to see every day. Is this a metaphor for what's happening to him? The sunlight fading on him? He's down low, you know? I don't know. Is breakfast not a peaceful one? His mother doesn't really dance around things for him. She's chiding him for slouching and, I guess, moping And she just doesn't let Cyril get away without answering her question about, you know, what are your prospects? Then he tries to shame her when he mentions, you know, you didn't come to visit me. I had an extra room. But she just doesn't let up. A parent like this is probably pretty relatable to some people. Probably didn't offer him much help or guidance growing up. Probably was very quick with criticism. Slow with praise. We get to see... Blue and brown kicks cereal, and the only reason I recognize that kick cereal is because both of my kids are currently fond of that. But in a way, that, you know, that, that blue and brown kind of was like a planet. It, it evoked a planet to me. If it was green and blue, it would have been a little bit harder to, to, to recognize, but, you know, he plucks that out of a bowl of other planets that are awash in this galaxy of blue milk. Uh, I mean, I'm picking up on this stuff. If they're not really intending it, well, I'm, I'm picking up on it. Cyril's mom brings up an uncle who can do a favor. It might not actually even be a real relative. You know, sometimes people say, like, oh, this is Uncle Harlow, and he's just a family friend or something. But he seems to owe them. I have no idea why or if we'll ever get to know why. Edie is confident that this guy is going to come through. Cyril seems to imply that this is going to cost him or something. Now, I, I wonder, you know, does Major Pardigaz have a first initial of H? Is this Uncle Harlow Pardigaz, perhaps? You know, Mom's done waiting for her son to elevator status, so she's taking matters into her own hands. She's reaching out to somebody who's important. Well... Uncle Harlow will know what's best. On Aldani, this. Clem wakes and discovers his pack is missing, but Luthan's sky kyber necklace is still safe and sound. Arvel Skeen took the pack, apparently at the behest of Vel. Really, they all kind of want to know, can this guy be trusted? There's no sense being upset. You're lucky to be alive right now. We've been down here for months and the stakes are high. The writing in this scene, once again, it puts to shame some of the other shows that Disney has put out recently. Andor and Skeen going back and forth, trying to give less than they find out about each other, is really enjoyable to watch. Moss Backrack is masterful with his attitude in the scene. And Luna and he are so believable as characters to me. I, I find myself going, yeah, they're, these are real guys having an argument. This is Star Wars. It's fantasy. Sci-fi fantasy, I I I just I get sucked in. It's it's great performances, great writing. Do that. I feel that tension. It's righteous tension. It's earned. It's not forced like I'm sorry, like it was to me in Obi Wan. There is a lot on the line here. Cassian seems very swayed by the seriousness of scheme. and I think that kind of makes him more comfortable. I mean, here this guy is challenging it, but I think. He feels more comfortable because of it. This is the conversation where we hear the title, The Axe Forgets, But the Tree Remembers. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's a saying because it's always that way. To the victor, go to the spoils. History is written by the victorious. You remember the losses more than the wins. You know, for Cashin, he's been both. Right now, he's an axe trying really hard not to be a tree, right? He remembers the pain and suffering inflicted by the Empire. Skeen is on full tree mode here. He, he wants to do the chopping, though. He desperately wants to be an axe. Andor is just not sure that this group knows what they're in for, but Skeen assures him. It always breaks at the weakest point. Are you worried about the kids? And that makes a surprise. He's green, but he's all in. He's a true believer. Nothing but the cause for him. And there's Sinta, Sintakaz. She is stone cold and fearless. Probably the toughest one here. He describes Nemek as a true believer. Sintakaz is described as stone cold and fearless, and probably the toughest one there. To me, that's a stark contrast from what I actually see is her as the medic, which to me is like a position of care and caring. I don't believe his description of her. Time will tell, though, if that's on purpose. Then Lieutenant Gorn is briefly discussed, and while Andor worries that he might be leading them to a trap, Skeen points out he wouldn't have to. You know, just take us out. It would save lives and time if he just ended them right there. Why would he go through all this elaborate planning and stuff? Well, what about Skeen and Andor? What's the deal with Skeen and Andor? Well, that's to come. And in this episode, by the way. But Andor flirts with, you know, kind of telling a little bit of the truth, even if Skeen doesn't know it yet. I'm here to win and walk away. Wouldn't that be lovely? To Coruscant we go, and the home of Mom Mothma. <laughs> That's right, she and Perrin have a kid. Leia, not Leia. And so much is told through this scene, with subtext. It's like the Gilroys are just teaching a writing class here. We get to know so much about Mothma by how her daughter speaks to her. The point is we have a schedule. The driver's waiting. I've planned on this and we're going. You're only doing it to show off. What? Just go. What would I be showing off? That you're involved somehow. Well, that's just... Nobody cares. You can relax. That's just so hurtful. See? There you go. Go where? That's my point. It's all about you, isn't it? It's always all about you. Is this really how you'd like to start the day? I didn't choose this conversation. So if you're a parent and your child hasn't talked to you like that yet, well, just remember this when they get a little older and then learn to talk. (laughs) There's a ring of truth to what Lita says here. Just enough that it hurts her mother. You know, not just because... She's speaking it to her or her attitude towards her. But also Perrin is there at the table nodding his approval. You know, his daughter's got this attitude towards mom and he's kind of like, yeah, I approve. The family is on different trajectories right now. Mon Mothma is not home because she's out there saving the galaxy. Why aren't you home, mom? You know, why, why aren't you home, wife? Oh, you're out there saving these people? What? They're not worth anything. You know, she's trying to save the galaxy and she can't even save her own family. I so appreciate the support. On Aldani, the team is making final preparations. Clem gets to know Nemec a little better. And if the writers follow the trope, man, this true believer, as Skeen called him, he's not going to make it, right? You know, he's got this manifesto. and, And he has a very powerful line. He says, the pace of repression outstrips our ability to understand it. You know, the Empire can hide behind many atrocities easier than just one. To me, his take on tech, technology, was you know, a really important message that he's trying to convey. That's an old one. Old and true and sturdy. One of the best navigational tools ever built. It can't be jammed or intercepted. Something breaks. You can fix it yourself. Hard to learn. Yes, but once you've mastered it, you're free we've grown reliant on imperial tech and we've made ourselves vulnerable there's a growing list of things we've known and forgotten things they've pushed us to forget things like freedom it's not just the technology that they're relying on right i mean it's it's everything they're relying on the empire to tell them how to get their food and it's a kind of a not a not a reflection of our own society but i mean i can't i couldn't fix my own tv i can't fix my own computer hardly i mean i i I kind of did. I just reinstalled something, but there's so much around us that we rely on someone else to come in and, and clean or fix or figure it out. Look what's happening with our world's food supply and um, finding people jobs and things. It It's really scary how a little bump can really take you off the rails. And I think that's a really interesting message for Nemec to, to get across. And, he seems kind of like the most naive, but he's the one that's thinking about this the most, perhaps. So Nemec and Skeen are trying to get a little bit more out of Andor. You know, what do you believe? For now, though, he's, he's staying guarded. Nemec trusts because he so desperately wants everyone to agree with his way of thinking. You know, he doesn't just want people fighting. He wants them to agree with what he's saying. Skeen... Well, he's the skeptic who's in this for revenge. He wants to cause the Empire pain. It's not that he just doesn't trust Clem. You don't trust him? I barely trust you. Mm. The scene leads directly to a meeting where Terraman and Vel seem to be pretending to quiz Clem, but he astutely calls them out on their bluff. They may have planned to get in, but Cashin seems to have very quickly learned something from Luther. Remember that like a rule number two, plan your escape on the way in or before you need it? Well, here the leaders of this mission have absolutely no idea how to get out with this payload of credits. A pilot would certainly have to know about the weight of the craft he's flying, especially if he's flying something not made for a quick getaway. It's not even really a cargo ship. I mean, it's just kind of like a I can imagine it being, you know, like, why'd you bring this, uh, right, you know, rider truck, uh, you know, this, um, this rental truck to, uh, to, to the racetrack here. You know, you're not getting away from the, you, well, I thought we could fit more bags of money in the back. I mean, it's not really meant for the job that they're pulling. We see Clement, Cashin, he's prepared, even if they're not. Okay, there's a load clutch. It's a big, ugly handle, just right next to the booster throttle. There's a gauge, just below, to read out the weight. Why isn't this in the manual? Because it's a custom job. It's it's an add-on. <laughs> what were you gonna do if I wasn't here? What would they do if he wasn't there? I mean, the whole mission would certainly fail, right? I mean, they'd get maybe they break in, but they're all getting caught. So I I still think. This is a this mission is mostly going to fail. I I feel like mostly, or at most rather, there will only be one other survivor. I think that's how it's going. The way I see it happening, Andor makes it out, and there's a dying member of this team, and he has to decide: Am I just going to escape with the credits, or am I going to return to Luthan? And we we know which path he chooses if that's true, but it, it maybe it also could be. Instead of a dying member, maybe he makes an out with the traitor. The, the traitor insists on running with the credits, and then he has to kill them and explain himself to Luthen. What if it was Vel? What if Andor is the one suggesting that he would run? Then Nemec tries to stop him, only getting killed by accident, and then Andor has a change of heart and then returns with the credits? And we know what happened, and you know, and when it when push came to shove, but uh, you know, oh, he has to tell this story about well, we we all died, and, but here I am. Terraman and Vel pretend they're just checking, right? But Andor is not leaving his fate in their hands. Might have been ugly, but we'd have figured it out. We wanted to be sure. No, oh, okay, I'll pilot. No, you'll do as you're told. I'm flying it. We can say it's your idea, I don't care, but if it's my ass on the line, I'm pulling this thing out of there. Okay. Okay. We get some scenes of the rebel camp life. Terriman puts on his pretending hat, tries having Clem imagine the valley they're in as if they were at the real Garrison Valley. There's talk of the ancient temple path. You know, maybe that's, again, hinting at Jedi or something Force-related. Then the scene shifts to Gorn in his lieutenant duties. He's dressing down two subordinates for leaving those temple grounds a mess. Why would an Imperial care if this temple ground was a mess? Well, Gorn just acts like a jerk. You know, it's just like, hey, Vader or the Empire Emperor is coming to the second Death Star. You know, Imperial officers, you, you, you better get ready. You better, you know, they're all panicking that a Superior might see things running less than smoothly. It plays well to these subordinates. They get to cleaning up. But someone was using this specific area as target practice. Can't be stormtroopers, right? Because they can't hit anything. But I wonder if a sniper has been using this recently and if that comes into play. So the scene shifts again. We're reminded that the need for this is because someone's coming. You know, the engineer. There's talk about dinner being put on by the commandant. And you know, so some's coming from Corsat, they're really important. Then we go back to terramin in the camp, trying to make sure Clem can pretend to be a soldier. Can you walk like a soldier? I've seen it done. Let's find out if you've been paying attention. Form up. To Ferrex and the damage in the town, the marching soldiers, the damage in the town's getting cleaned up under Supervisor Blevin. That's a real nice cut there. Um Blevin's got a watchful eye, the empire's indeed taking over, and then there's this Captain Tigo who's hoping to move up in the world. All Blevin really cares about is, "Hey, you know, I just want this to look good. Just I want things to go smoothly." He's all about appearances. Can he get things up and running quickly enough for Partagas to be pleased in his next meeting? So all that seems to really matter to the imperial bureaucracy is, "Am I gonna have to do your work for you?" Or can you just do your job? And, you know, maybe a little bit of mine, too. Do you want it or not? The assignment? No, you're taking the assignment. I was asking if this would do as your headquarters. Could I be made prefect? The title, I know it doesn't come with extra pay. You can wear a bull gown if you'd like. Just get this up and running before my next staff meeting. The scene shifts back to the rebel camp again, and marching drills turn into a lesson from Clem to the group. You know, he shows, I have been watching you guys very closely. Why switch sides? Skin is left-handed. You want your weapon on the outside. What am I? Right-handed. Taramin? Right. Center? Right. Nemec? Favors right, but shoots left. His awareness might have shown Taramin up a little bit. But this is best-case scenario in their minds, right? This guy knows what he's doing. As long as he's on their side, they feel better every time he's tested and he comes out with not just the answer, but like an answer plus. The drills are interrupted by the scream of a TIE fighter. Now, this pilot flying this TIE fighter is not interested in what they're doing. He's just doing a flyby because, you know, hey, there's these farmers in this valley and the Nords will scare them. They are worthless to everybody in the Empire, and this pilot. He's not scouting them. He doesn't even waste blaster fire on them. He could have just used them for target practice, and who would have known? Nemec points out a solid truth about the nature of shows of force. They'll soon see. surprise from above is never as shocking as one from below. A great editing choice, again, takes us back to Gorn, who is now on top of the dam as the same TIE fighter, I think, buzzes the dam. But Gorn's fears don't come from above. They come from below below in rank perhaps he's testing out everyone near him including a corporal away from his station even these small parts are just acted so well i got a real british army in africa or asia india vibe from this scene where the corporal is calling the locals donnies like we might see if someone was making a movie portraying the british empire as evil for occupying or fighting in india or africa you know and you know there's an empire there and an empire here too right He's insulting the locals, thinking, you know, that's what my superior wants to hear. But Gorn redirects the talk back to procedure. This is masterful writing here, because this is showing us how much groundwork is being laid, even in the smallest places. They're not just walking in and going to say, oh, uh," they're laying the groundwork so early. No one would be suspecting of what might come later. He's putting on this air of preparation for the engineer who's coming. You know, they're going to move the airbase from... 52 clicks away to here at the dam and the garrison. Eventually, the natural beauty of the countryside will be nothing but concrete and metal. Army and air force and the transformation of this planet from an agrarian one to what the Empire has envisioned will begin. I don't know how long it takes a planet to go from something like Endor to something like Coruscant, but that's the Industrial Empire. Hey, what are you doing? I'm just moving your stuff. Don't. It was in the way. Don't ever. At Rebel Camp, the final preparations are beginning. We hear about explosive charges and comms being checked and Cassian is learning Aldani phrases. He puts on Luthan's Sky Kyber necklace before he gets dressed. It's attention to details like that, which set this show apart from so many others for me. They'd have cut that small scene, not even shot it maybe, and might not even be necessary from a continuity standpoint. But it reinforces this paranoia in Klan. Bosnian Primes? It's useless. They haven't broken, misplaced, or mislabeled a single military component in the past 12 quarters. Well, maybe there's a, an unofficial ledger. Yeah, I wouldn't trust anything coming out of there. Imperial Navy is the only account they have left at this point and they never admit anything's wrong. You should go. I didn't realise how late it was. I'm saying if you are. Dedra is on her way to her office on Coruscant, and hears Blevin talking about Ferex in the ISB hallway. Things seem to be going so well for him. In her office, her assistant is her best friend in this. She's got someone who believes in her, and what's more, he is keeping her directed. She's trying to find some backdoor into, you know, getting into Hosni and Prime's affairs. But... He reminds her, you know, you're on to something. Stay focused. He points out thefts have taken place on Kessel and Fondor and the star path from Stiergaard. So we've heard about Fondor and Steerguard in this show. Kessel we know from the original trilogy and from Solo. Then we mention proton warheads from a place called Base K. I don't know what that is. But then we hear Jakku targeting consoles from Jakku. I know this. If I was them, this is how I'd do it. I'd spread it out. Never climb the same fence twice. It's too random to be random. I think it actually just is random. You know, I don't think the Rebellion is formed enough right now to be doing all this. This is probably just Miro having this hunch that comes out of that, the Star Path being from Guard, and that, you know, so that's a confirmation And then all this other stuff, she just has a hunch on it. So I don't think her evidence is going to appear. I don't think this is all a coordinated effort. And she's not going to get the credit that she seeks. But there are all these suspicious things going on. So like Cyril, her hunch could lead to her finding out something, but not for all the reasons that she thinks. You know, Cyril didn't care if Andor killed the guards in self-defense. It didn't matter if if it was right or not. Dedra doesn't care about the thefts. She just wants credit and upward mobility. So that's what the scene, I think, in the hallway tells us. And and her introduction last episode about her character. You know, it's telling us she wants upward mobility at any cost. So she and her assistant are going to work the midnight oil, go through some more cases. Meanwhile, the rebels are destroying evidence of their conspiracy back at their camp on Aldani. Nemec's model is being burned. It's a short scene tone-setting one, but we do get a toast that elevates this mission from a small group to a belief structure. One that Nemic's actor probably actually had to come in and record an extra line echoing Vell's from the sound of it. To the rebellion. To the rebellion. That immediately brought to mind Luke's words about, you know, you know about the rebellion? You know, this is the nascent stages of it people have been resisting sure but this is a point of rally now if i'd have been editing though i might have put the scene in the garrison with um gorn where he's talking to the two underlings that we'll hear about later right after this instead of continuing with the march up the mountains just because there's the shot of the garrison burning right there before switching scenes but that you know that's a minor nitpick I needn't tell you how wrong you were about Uncle Harlow. But you will. He said he never felt police work was your chosen path. Because he knows me so well. And whose fault is that? Can I guess? Perhaps you'll study Uncle Harlow with more energy in the future. What field is it he thinks I should be pursuing? He said he wanted to think about it. So they're marching off at the break of dawn, and then we go back to the same breakfast table on Coruscant. Cyril and his mom are sitting there. She is wearing a very similar outfit, but it is different. It just fits so well with the theme, though. You know, this is the monotony of this life here on Coruscant. Just a little different, but pretty much the same. And Cyril gets to hear, I told you so, basically, from his mom again. We don't know who Uncle Harlow is, what he has promised it sounded like she was implying that there was a slight career change from private security. I just felt like, I don't know, I think we're being set up that we're going to see him in the ISB before long. But that's spy work, and I can't imagine that that's much different from the police work that Edie says Harlow felt was wrong for him. Maybe that means I'm wrong, but maybe also he's going to be like that driver, Clovis, or Chloris, The eyes and ears somewhere, but, you know, like... like Chloris is to Mon Mothma. So maybe Harlow knows Cyril is this try-hard kind of a guy. And he doesn't have to tell him to spy. He doesn't have to hire him directly. He, he's going to get him a job catering or make him a driver or a servant somewhere in a home. Then voila. nosy old Cyril will just turn something up on his own. And hey, you know, Harlow, I, I, I found this out. Edie just reinforces for Cyril she's a busybody. She's counting on her son to bring her up a few levels, both in living space and in social circles. I told him how sorry you were about what happened. I stressed that it was a large enough mistake to be deeply educational. Yes, I heard some of that. Our conversation. Your side of it? Hard to miss. Sadly, I wasn't able to study Uncle Harlow's response. He knows how much we're counting on it. From Cyril's house, we go back to Aldani and the march to the garrison, and we hear from Vel why the lieutenant is turning on the Empire. Simple. He fell in love with a local, and that girl's dead. Because of them. It then cuts to the scene with him very skillfully playing games with his subordinates. He pretends they're doing shoddy work. You know, that way, when they appeal to his... I don't know, compassion, he can be the hero to the men by letting them slide on work so that they can see the eye. It's so rare and special and an occasion that it's the one perk that these enlisted men associate with this posting. You know, Aldani, I got to go there. Oh, well, every three years is this really cool thing. So it also shows how smart it is for them to pull this job at this exact time. Everybody's going to be interested in seeing that, and they won't be paying attention to what's going on underneath. The arrival of the engineer is both providing some cover, but also it's dangerous. We don't yet know who this engineer is, and we don't know if he'll be bringing security with him. You know, what if it's Blevin that's also coming along? We we heard about this speech at a Finkley conference. What if? The conference is going to happen at the garrison. Or could the engineer be named Finkley? Well, even if it's someone we haven't met or heard about, bureaucrats love to make themselves seem more important by bringing large security details. That happens in the real world and in the empire. You know, presidents or mayors and stuff will bring in huge details, sometimes that they need, sometimes they really don't need. It's kind of too much for me to hope that Vader's going to show up. But, you know, there could be someone coming that we know well. I would love it. I'd be okay with that. The last shot of the scene is a pretty cool one. It's got credits stacked in large rolls. Man, I want poker chips that look like that. But what if they had made this the last shot of the episode so they could have gone out on credit rolls? There we go. I knew it. I knew you were lying. I knew it. Back at lunch with our rebels, Skeen uncovers the Kyber necklace. He basically holds a knife to uh, Clem's throat. I guess he saw it or knew something was up. He knows this thing is valuable, too. So trust appears to be broken, and he wants answers. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to You them. want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! <laughs> the truth is... Clem is a gun for hire, a mercenary. That's not ideal, but it's got to work here, right? It's not like there's many options. The situation is diffused a bit when... I thought it looked like a Lambda-class shuttle appeared to be heading for the garrison. To me, when I see that, it's very evocative for me. But it could just be just the Engineer. Or, yeah, it could be the Emperor. Or it could be one of the Emperor's flunkies coming to study the Eye for Sith reasons or something. I mean, it's just a ship. But man, my imagination just runs wild, and I get so excited over possibilities. So the ship leaves the area. Clem, finally, he comes clean. Well, you know, almost. He doesn't say his name, his cash-in. But honestly, the truth works for him here. More than that, he's also clearly been on a job like this before, because his advice rings true. The day before is always hard. Too much time to worry. You think we're scared? I know you are. It's really only the money to take a risk like this. Come on. Maybe you're the one that's afraid. Of course I'm afraid. But there's a difference between fear and losing your nerve. You want out of this. Make a choice. Don't use me as an excuse. On Coruscant, we're in a car with Mon Mothma and her husband, and I guess Chloris is driving. Maybe he's listening in. I don't know. We, you know, we're, we're used to seeing Mothma taking most of the abuse in these situations in these scenes that we've seen in the last two episodes but she can dish it out too before Perrin asks Cloris to take the expressway we get this nice little jab at her husband low blow maybe I don't know it does seem to sting when were you planning to tell me about this new foundation I hmm. didn't think he'd be interested why is that it's charitable on Aldani, the group reaches the ridge above the dam at night, and Clem compliments Nemec on the model accuracy. They need to signal, though, so they got to get a fire going. Then we switch to Cyril's room on Coruscant. We see he has action figures in his room. He's not playing with them or anything, but he's still got this hologram of Kashin. He is obsessed with this. To him... This guy's the cause of all of his trouble, but we know from the episodes that he really has no one to blame but himself. He'd have been just fine if he only would have listened to Chief Hine, right? On Aldani, Gorn sees the signal fire through his binoculars on his nightly patrol on the dam, and around the campfire scheme, finally shares his motivation with Andor. There's a long version, but what matters is they killed him. He was a farmer. Imperial Prefect came in, took his land, flooded it. He couldn't fight him. He couldn't bear it, so he went a boat and filled his pockets with stones. Listen, in a lesser show, and I really believe this, they'd have just left Skeen seeming like a jerk. And there would have been all these arguments about how he's actually reasonable and justified in what he says and what he's done so far. But the show does this. And... and I'm going to add, his character even says, there's a long version of it, but the short version is, they killed him, meaning his brother. That's it. That's all we needed. That makes everything make sense to us. Now, if you still think the writing and the plotting is slow, I mean, okay, you're wrong, but okay. I mean, you can have your opinion on that, but this is phenomenal. I don't want Star Wars to be nonstop action. Then I just don't care about the characters or the world. Don't get me wrong, there's a place for those movies. But honestly, to me, they're not very rewatchable. Once you see them, they kind of pass out of mind. Here, we, we get so much, and it seems effortless to me. The campfire scene has one more surprise for us, and that's Vel and Sinta are leaving. For what? To do what? I mean, why didn't they share what their job was going to be before, right? Certainly, they'd have every detail of the plan worked out. I can't believe that, you know, what do, what will you be doing while I blow up the wall wasn't asked before. But, okay, okay, maybe what they had to do was spelled out as being separate from the group. But, you know, maybe they didn't talk about the timing and how that might come into play. The result, though, someone new is in charge completely. Terman. And he's been begrudgingly dealing with Clem's know-it-all takedowns. Well, at least the ones that weren't directed at Skeen. But now, he's the guy in charge. I need to hear you tell me you can follow the plan. You won't have a problem with me. Good luck to you. No farewells tonight. Plenty of work to do together tomorrow. The last scene of the episode brings back one of my new favorite characters, Cleia. Luthan is in his workshop behind his antiquity store, trying to maybe scan for word on what, you know, maybe this is like a shortwave radio kind of a thing. I don't know. I mean, it can't be because you're not going to get off planet or very far with that. But it's some kind of tech. He's just trying to, you know, scan for some word about the mission. No news is good news in this case, though, right? Cleia comes in man she's so great she's not in any other star wars properties that i'm aware of but then again neither is luther so i hope my hope is just the way they interact you know she's talking to him about you know you knew this was going to happen you knew this is how this is what you signed up for basically and you know let them do their job and and everything will turn out or it won't but you can't you know you can't micromanage it at this stage and and his thoughts are you know, do you have your walkaway pack ready? You know, he's like, he—he's kind of a pessimist in this case. I really hope she and Luthen are around for the entire run of the show. You know, I—I I wish I could say that we end up finding out that she has a, a big part in the the New Republic or something, but I maybe maybe they just get to run off together at the end with their walkaway packs. That'd be enough for me. Have you checked your walkaway pack? Yes and the one on the Fonder. I don't like seeing you nervous. There's nothing else you can do, Luthen. They're either gonna be okay, aren't they, or they're not. What? That's a daring prediction. Bell's the only one who traces back. No. The thief, Andor. I wasn't careful. You wanted this to happen. This is what it took. It's never gonna be perfect. I wanted it too much. We have clients in the morning. Yeah, I'll be ready. Okay, so what do you think? Let me know. I I love the show so far. The only way I can describe that caveat there, you know, so far, I I was so hopeful for the Rings of Power token adaptation on Amazon Prime, and I've just been really let down. It's it's just the absolute worst writing. Plot decisions just come out, are just so stupid, and and many of them are just unnecessarily breaking the lore of Tolkien. It, it make it's just, it, it would have been better for them to not to do anything with that show. Honestly, it's just so bad. There's only one segment of the story that I'm even remotely attached to, and it's the Elrond and Durin storyline. I I, I like that friendship that they show. Everything else to me is just so, just awful. And I was worried Andor would be struggling to come up with storylines that made me want to get invested in this guy that I know doesn't make it off Scarif in five years before we even meet Luke Skywalker. You know, easily my favorite Star Wars character. But so far, I've been so pleasantly surprised I've gone from indifference to love so fast that a huge part of me says, there's got to be this other shoe ready to drop though, right? Not not so far. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) I'm way in. All of the creations, all of the adaptations of the lore of Star Wars, have just so far to me seem to be fitting so well. This, right now is the best Star Wars show on Disney+. And I love The Mandalorian. But the writing in this is much better. The directing, the editing, the acting is really, really good. I'm still really invested in The Mandalorian. This is the way. But this show, I, I think, as objectively as I could say it, is better. Yeah. Good. All right. That's all for this episode. But I do want to mention, people in southwestern Florida still need your help rebuilding after Hurricane Ian. I know, that's, you know, like shifting gears pretty fast there, right? But if you are a person who would like to help, the state of Florida has an official disaster relief fund that you can feel safe donating to at volunteerflorida.org forward slash donate FDF forward slash. So please, if you can and you feel like You want to do something and you don't know what to do, go there and donate. You can send feedback or comments on this podcast, and I'm going to do my best to answer them in our next podcast, maybe in feedback episodes if we get so much, but we really don't get a lot of feedback. Please, I want to change that. I want to engage. We're going to continue with this Wednesday's episode 6, we don't know the title yet or anything like that. It's probably going to be the the mission. <laughs> it's probably going to have a lot to do with that. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast and send in your own thoughts and ideas via email to thisisthewaypodcast at gmail.com. What if the next episode is called The Eye? The Eye of Aldani. And so what if they call the next episode The Eye? And the last episode of The Rings of Power was called The Eye. That would be really weird, wouldn't it? Find us on Instagram, Twitter at this is the way pod or on facebook.com at slash this is the way pod. Our Linktree site has all our links, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E forward slash this is the way pod. And thanks for joining me. This is the fifth episode discussion and reaction in the first season of Andor. I'm your host, Steve Lascazo, and this is The Way. May the Force be with you, always.